most fruits and vegetables are, are all depend on insect pollinators. So, you know, the, the stark truth is lots of us would starve to death if we didn't have insect pollinators. So we really need these little creatures. I'm Anna LaPay, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media, where we bring you into conversation with the authors of some of the best new books on food culture and food politics. 60 years after the groundbreaking publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, we continue to face the devastating consequences of the assault on the birds and the bees and all of us. In the new book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, Dave Goulson, a professor of biology at the University of Sussex in Great Britain, reports on the staggering decline in insect populations, why it matters, and the connection between this loss and industrial agriculture. I learned so much from reading this book and from my conversation with Doug, and I hope you will too. Thank you so much, Dave, for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk about your book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, something I think we can all get behind. (laughs) Uh, I would love to just start, Dave, with your insect interest origin story. You share a bit about it in the book, but can you share with us one of those stories from those early days of, of how you became fascinated with insects? Sure. Um, it is one of those strange things. I can't really explain why, but, but from a very early age, I just was fascinated by insects. I think I was in the first year of primary school, so about five or six years old, and I found these little caterpillars on some weeds growing on the edge of the school playground at lunchtime and I collected them up and put them in my lunchbox amongst the crumbs of sandwiches and took them home and managed to rear some of them but they turned into these beautiful scarlet and black moths we call them cinnabar moths and it just seemed like kind of magic that transformation and I've been hooked ever since I just never grew out of that kind of childish enthusiasm. In reading your book, you really pick up on that, you know, the way in which you sprinkle throughout the book, these stories from the world of insects, these magical stories from the world of insects. As somebody who is no insect expert, I really loved having that element in the book. So another piece of the story that you talk about in Silent Earth is sort of a pitch for insects, a sort of call to all of us to care about something that I think for many people is not front of mind or they might not understand their value. I mean, I think about reading your book, I was remembering this moment I had as a young girl. I I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, but spent all my summers in New Jersey, hot, humid New Jersey. And I have this vivid memory and reading your book brought it up for me of sitting on my grandmother's stoop near Newark, New Jersey, and seeing a swarm of of fireflies and talk about magic, right? It was this totally magical experience for a kid who didn't grow up in a place that was filled with fireflies. And while some of us have these nostalgic moments, I think, as you say in the book, a lot of people associate insects with pests, with fleas or cockroaches or mosquitoes. And yet, as you talk about in the book, there is this huge pitch one could make for why we need to care about insects. And I wonder if you could share, like, what's your what's your elevator speech pitch for insects? <laughs> yeah, sure. Before I do, though, I have to say I absolutely love fireflies and we don't have them in the UK. Mm. So insects, why are insects important? They make up the bulk of life on Earth. 
uh, more than two thirds of all known species. They're food for an enormous number of other creatures, um, things like many birds, almost all bats, lots of lizards, um, freshwater fish like trout and salmon, um, and lots of amphibians. They all eat insects, so if, if insects disappear, then they'll go too. Um, but more importantly, in a way, insects perform lots of what scientists often call ecosystem services. They're busy doing jobs that need doing things like recycling cow pads, dung, dead bodies, dead tree trunks, leaves, uh, and so on. And they break them down and release the nutrients into them so that more plants can grow, which is really vital. Um, and they help to keep the soil healthy. They distribute seeds. And and almost all of this is, is done without anybody paying the slightest attention and in most cases not appreciating that it's happening. I think there's just one thing that insects do that most people are at least vaguely familiar with, and that's pollination, of course, which um, is vital for the very large majority. More than 80% of all plant species on our planet need insects to pollinate them or else they produce no seed and ultimately would disappear. And Roughly three quarters of all the crops we grow in the world wouldn't give a full harvest without being pollinated by insects. And that includes everything from sort of apples and strawberries uh, to tomatoes, chili peppers, even coffee and chocolate. Um, most fruits and vegetables all depend on insect pollinators. So, you know, the, the stark truth is lots of us would starve to death if we didn't have insect pollinators. So we really need these little creatures. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, this is a topic I care passionately about. Real Food Media, our team at Real Food Media has worked on many advocacy campaigns that connect to protecting insects. But I have to say in reading your book, Dave, it was like there's that experience of having a book that tells this story in one place and sitting with it and really taking that time to absorb it. I feel like I personally really absorbed what you just shared, the incredible work that insects do. I absorbed it on a level that I don't think I had before reading your book. You tell a lot of stories in the book of, okay, what are examples of like, if you take an insect population away from a place, what what do we see in terms of the devastation that happens? And you tell the story of like cow patties in Australia and what happened there. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, sure. The Australian cow patty example is very uh, interesting. Um, so, so, of course, we Europeans colonised Australia and we took with us our cattle um, everywhere in the world that do a great job of clearing away and recycling dung. But the ones that live in Australia naturally are used to dealing with marsupial poo, which tends to be really dry because it's, it's an arid country and these animals can't afford to waste water in their uh, poo. So they produce really hard, dry droppings. And cowpats are very different. They're very liquid in comparison. And the poor Australian dung beetles simply drowned if they tried to do anything <laughs> with the cowpats. And so nothing was breaking down the cowpats in Australia. They just dried, baked hard on the ground and grass couldn't grow through them. And they started to accumulate. Now, off the top of my head, something like 5,000 square kilometres of Australia ended up covered under cowpats. <laughs> And obviously that, that wasn't good because the, the, the pastures were just becoming a hard-baked sheet of poo um, instead of grass. And so they essentially, they realized the problem and they, they assembled a little team of scientists who traveled the world looking for suitable 
dung beetles to import to Australia and uh, successfully found some, I think they came from South Africa, uh, introduced several species to Australia. And in, in just a few years, the cowpats were all magically um, disposed of and everything everything was tickety-boo. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a yeah great example uh, on a you know huge scale of what happens when you don't have the 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 insects to do the work that they're that they need to do and a theme of the book obviously the title speaks to this silent earth is a theme of what what is happening what will happen if we don't address and as you say in the subtitle avert the insect apocalypse and it's not lost on me that your book is out this year the 60th anniversary of the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring I'd love to take some time to talk about what you have reported on in this book about what the biggest drivers are for the incredible insect decline that we're seeing and 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 first can you just share a little bit about what we know and what, what we kind of, it seems like know now better than we have, say, even 10 years ago about what that insect decline really is, like, uh, and why maybe the alarm is really ringing so loudly now in a way that, say, it didn't ring 10 years ago. There are massive knowledge gaps when it comes to insect declines, because there are so many insects. For the large majority of insect species on the planet, we actually have no data at all mm-hmm. as to how they're doing. In fact, We've named 1.1 million species of insect, but it's estimated there might be another three or four or five million that we haven't even discovered yet, which is mind boggling and awesome. But it illustrates our ignorance, because if we haven't named them, we can't possibly know how they're faring. All of that said, the evidence that we do have is pretty consistent and points to quite rapid decline. And just to give you a few examples. Um, It's estimated that butterflies in the Netherlands are down by 84% in the last 100 years. British butterflies down about 50% in the last uh, 45 years. Um, The monarch butterfly in the US has declined at its overwintering grounds in Mexico by about 80% in 25 years, and so on and so on. Probably the most dramatic study was from Germany, which used malaise traps to catch flying insects of all types so it's a much more inclusive study than than any of the others which tend to focus on one pretty group of organisms and the german study uh revealed a 76 percent decline in the overall biomass the weight of flying insects across germany in 26 years starting in 1989 through to 2016 so seemingly three quarters of the insects disappeared in, in less in just over a quarter of a century, which is really terrifying, given what I've explained already about how important these things are. And it leads on to, OK, so why are they declining? If we're going to fix this, we need to understand what's causing it. And it's, it's widely agreed there are multiple drivers of insect declines. There's no single culprit we can point to. Habitat loss generally is probably still the biggest, and particularly the the hacking down of rainforests, burning down and so on, which we still horrifically see going on on the news in Brazil and Southeast Asia and so on, undoubtedly having huge impacts. Um, And associated with that is is the sort of industrialization of agriculture, because usually the habitat that's lost is transformed into farmland. And the, the sort of big monoculture cropping systems that we've invented 
uh, are pretty hostile to biodiversity of all types. And associated with that kind of industrialized agriculture are high levels of chemical inputs, particularly pesticides, uh, including lots of insecticides, which, of course, um, fairly obviously impact on, on insects. There are other drivers, too. We've got problems caused by invasive species. Uh, light pollution is harmful to night flying insects like moths. We've spread diseases around the world accidentally and, and so on and so on. Um, but the biggest one is probably kind of industrialized agriculture and the chemicals associated with it. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting in your book when you're talking about as you describe, industrialized agriculture, which of course includes pesticides and within the class of pesticides, many pesticides impact insects, not just insecticides, which are designed to kill insects. But I found it really interesting and helpful how you talked about the impact of synthetic fertilizers on insects. Can you talk a bit about that? I haven't heard that articulated as well as, as you talked about it in the book. Yeah, fertilizers get much less attention than uh, pesticides, but I think it's conceivable that their effects may be more profound. There are a number of ways that they impact on insects and on biodiversity more generally. They can profoundly alter plant communities. So in Europe in particular, we used to have 100 years ago, huge areas of, of beautiful flowerage grasslands, um, hay meadows, sort of man-made habitats caused by our grazing animals, but beautiful, full of flowers, full of insects. We had millions and millions of hectares of them, but they were destroyed largely by the introduction of fertilizers. If you simply uh, sprinkle a bit of fertilizer onto one of these beautiful meadows, a few species that love high nutrient soils grow really fast and they squeeze out everything else. So you end up with a field of tall grass and nettles just a couple of years later, just from that one act of sprinkling on some fertilizer. Um, and we see it to this day, if you go for a, a walk along the edge of an arable field, um, the only plants that are thriving are the ones that, that love all the, the nutrients leaching out of the, that are applied to the crop, but don't, of course, stay exactly where you want them in the middle of the field. And not only are these plants kind of, you know, does that massively reduce floral diversity, but um, there's also interesting evidence that some, at least some species of plant when they're grown in high nutrient soils are much less palatable to insects, things like the caterpillars of butterflies. We're not exactly sure what the mechanism is there, but it seems perhaps that because the plants are so vigorous, they can invest more in chemical defenses against herbivores. But one way or another, they become essentially inedible to insects. So these effects might seem quite relatively subtle, I suppose. But the problem is that fertilizers are used in staggering quantities, millions of tons of them, and they get everywhere. As well as permeating the soil, they leach into streams and rivers and call that, cause algal blooms, uh, which can pretty much wipe out everything because light can't penetrate. Um, and uh, often they're toxic, so they kill the animal life in rivers and lakes and so on. So they really do have, have I think, far more uh, certainly far more profound impacts than most people would realize. Yeah, it it's, was really interesting reading, as I said, reading that section of the book, because as you say, I think that 
increasingly pesticides certainly are getting more attention. I mean, again, thanks to books like yours and advocacy groups around the world. But yes, you don't hear as much about that connection between fertilizers and insect loss. And it reminds me of that point you raise in the book. You quote Donald Rumsfeld, as you say, seemingly incomprehensible blathering in 2002. And he says, we also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> and you know, we could, there's a lot of things we could say about Donald Rumsfeld, but I think there is this way in which like his quote gets to what you are talking about, which is the unknown unknowns. As you're saying, there's, what did you say, 3.4 million insects that we have yet to even identify or name. I mean, talk about the unknown unknowns in this work. Yeah, I have this nagging feeling that we're missing things, you know. The, the problem is we've changed the world so fast. We've introduced so many new chemicals, which we've accidentally mm -hmm. polluted the environment with, not just agricultural products, but all sorts of uh, pharmaceutical products and industrial waste and so on and so on. And we're changing the world far, far faster than the capacity of scientists to measure the effects of what we're doing. Um, so it could be that there's something we've done um, that has made the world much, much more hostile to insects that we haven't yet recognized. Maybe we'll never recognize. Um, who knows? Um, but, but it seems entirely plausible to me. So hence the, the unknown unknowns. <laughs> right. Hence the need to act on the known knowns. I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book is that while there's so much unknowable, there are uh, a lot of things that we do know that are causing harm today that we could uh, take a really different regulatory and policy approach to. And so one of the things you talk about, I think, really well in the book is this relatively new threat to insects in the past several decades, the introduction of a whole new class of pesticides known as neonicotinoids, or some listeners might have heard the shortened version, uh, neonics. Uh, and, and you talk about in the book about the kinds of impacts that we do know about neonics on insects. And it got me wondering if you want to share a bit about what those known impacts are and to what extent do you see neonics as a uh, parallel to, worse than, similar to the effects of DDT, which of course famously was the pesticide that Rachel Carson sparked the most alarm about when she wrote Silent Spring. Sure, it's it's. I could talk to you for hours about these things, but it would, yeah, it it wouldn't be a very cheerful conversation. So neonics are a new generation of insecticide. They're synthetic variants on nicotine, of course, <laughs> which is where the name comes from. They're they're neurotoxins. They attack particularly the brains of insects. They're less toxic to people, but they are toxic to to people and mammals. But in insects, they're incredibly poisonous. It's kind of a bit like Novichok for insects. If they are, as I say, nerve agents. To an insect, this, this new generation of insecticides are about 7,000 times more poisonous than DDT was. They're not as persistent. Uh, DDT lasts for decades, perhaps hundreds of years. We've yet to find out. But, but neonics do last for a long time, and uh, certainly years. Uh, they're very widely adopted by farmers when they were introduced, and that's partly because of a particular property, which is they're systemic in plants. So many of the most common uses is a seed dressing. So the farmer buys seeds coated with pesticide, and he just sows them in the ground. He doesn't have to spray anything. Um, 
and that they're water soluble so the, ke- the coating of the seed dissolves in the soil and then the idea is that it should be sucked up by the roots of the plant and it spreads throughout the plant's tissues and renders the whole plant poisonous to any insect grazing any part of it which from a farmer's perspective i can see sounds pretty pretty cool so they were very widely adopted and we've reached a point where in the us the very large majority of crops are treated prophylactically with these chemicals there are a number of problems unfortunately which have started to emerge so in fact only something like 5% of the chemical is taken up by the crops roots most of it goes into the soil where it can accumulate over time if it's, if if the chemicals are used every year they build up in soils they leach into streams and rivers and poison aquatic life if there are flowers or say hedgerow plants growing next to the crop they suck up the poison as well so they then become toxic so if you grow flowers next to your crop to feed bees as many farmers do you're accidentally poisoning the bees um so one way or another it's it's turned out that these compounds are essentially poisoning the global environment um there was one recent study of where they they got hold of honey samples from around the world hundreds of them and screened them for uh, neonics and 75% of the world's honey samples are were contaminated with neurotoxins designed to kill insects that which means that three quarters of the world's honeybees are being poisoned right now that's not just bad for honeybees but for any pollinator that's visiting the plants that they're getting poisoned from the contaminated wildflowers something that wasn't evident from the start that has emerged recently is is the sublethal impacts of these chemicals so most of the safety tests focus on mortality on death so you dose some lab insects honeybees or whatever with pesticide and you see whether they're alive or dead 48 hours later and if they're alive you say everything's fine i'm oversimplifying somewhat but that's basically the gist of the regulatory system um but it's turned out that much tinier doses doses that won't kill a bee can cause catastrophic sublethal effects things like it's no longer able to navigate its immune system is damaged so it catches diseases its fecundity is reduced so it can't reproduce and so on and so on and none of that was revealed by the the regulatory tests that were done on these chemicals before they were released onto the market and unfortunately while europe has um taken steps to ban most neonics now since 2018 the rest of the world carries on using them routinely prophylactically um on more or less everything yeah yeah it's pretty depressing i mean you and me both live with that hope that uh uh more countries will take action in general on addressing the the sources of insect decline but specifically when you tell the story in the book about neonics what you just shared just now it seems like a pretty cut and dry case that uh these are absolutely devastating to our environment there there there's absolutely as you say as you just said and as you talk about in the book there's it, it you know if only 5% of the plants are even taking up uh these insecticides you know they're they're not effective either so i'm just curious uh you know from your vantage point what 
do you think explains that there hasn't been more action on neonics specifically? And again, I, I think about as we mark this anniversary of Silent Spring, the kind of reaction that uh, you know the U.S. government took to create agencies like the EPA in the wake of that book to uh, work toward a uh, discontinuation of agricultural use of DDT. Why don't you think we're seeing a similar response and or that urgency of response to neonics? Uh, essentially, I, I think it, it comes down to the subversive influence of, of industry, the companies mm-hmm. that produce these products. And they, there are some obvious parallels with the tobacco industry. It's a familiar story. Uh, the, the book Merchants of Doubt tells it quite well. Um, essentially, the agrochemical industry has done everything it can to cast doubt on a, on the evidence showing that that um, neonics are poisoning bees and other insects. They publish their own research, which invariably shows their chemicals to be harmless. Uh, they criticize anything that is published, which shows otherwise. They lobby governments. They have billions of pounds to spend. Um, it's, it's, and so it's, it's about maintaining doubt and convincing politicians that the scientific community is still divided, that we're not really sure that these chemicals are the cause of the problem, uh, and enabling politicians to get away with not bothering to act in the meantime, because they can say, oh, well, it seems like the science isn't quite clear yet. We need to do some more research before we make any rash decisions. It's exactly what happened with tobacco, and to a large extent, it also happened with DDT and so on, Rachel Carson was subject to all sorts of abuse um, after the publication of Silent Spring. Of course, you know, everything she said more or less was true, um, but uh, that didn't stop her coming in for an awful lot. There was a a vicious backlash in an attempt to undermine her personal credibility, which goes on to this day. Any scientist who speaks out against agrochemicals comes in for a lot of flack, sadly. Have you experienced that kind of pushback to your work? Yes, I've been accused of all sorts of terrible things. I've seen, particularly online these days, people can get away with writing anything. Um, I've been accused of making up data and so on and so on. It's pretty depressing, um, but I just do my best to ignore it. And there's nothing really much else one can do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you talk about this this power of the industry's influence and the parallels with tobacco. You know, we could draw parallels to the fossil fuel industry around climate. Can you share a moment where you felt like that kind of dominant narrative power and dominant lobbying power was punctured and, you know, an example of a sliver of hope in in action on addressing this insect crisis you described so well in the book? Actually, there was a killer blow in in Europe for neonics in particular, which came about because the industry were essentially forced by the European Union to fund a giant field trial, which was supposed to, to finally answer the question, do neonics harm bees? It was done over three countries on a, on a huge scale, cost millions of pounds, and Bayer and Syngenta paid for it. It was conducted by independent scientists. And although Bayer and Syngenta tried to influence the experiment and the analysis, when it was conclu- the study was concluded, it found, found quite clearly that neonics do indeed harm bees, both honeybees, bumblebees, and solitary bees were all included in this work. 
at which point the industry completely disowned the study, said it was fatally flawed from the start, even though they'd agreed to the protocol. And so that was published, I think, in 2017. And the next year, the European Union banned neonics uh, because they couldn't really wriggle out of it at that point. Um, but what I find really odd is that study is just as, although it was performed in Europe, it is just as valid in any other country in mm-hmm. the world. And it, it seems... Right. It's not like it's not like European uh, honeybees or (laughs) or insects are different. Right. And the crops are the same. The pesticides are the same. And yet there seems to be this strange attitude in America that unless the study has been performed in America, it's not relevant. Right. 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 No, that doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) I think that is a great example. That is possible. Right. I think that's part of what we need to hold on to is the possibility of there being shifts in regulation and, and in shifts in farmer and consumer attitudes. You mentioned Bayer and Syngenta, two of the largest agrochemical companies in the world. As we're recording this interview, we just saw the U.S. Supreme Court reject Bayer's attempt to appeal these lawsuits against the company for their herbicide, uh, glyphosate-based herbicide Roundup and its impact on users of the product and its linkage to cancer. And so, you know, we'll see what flows from that. But there are these moments that we can still look to where we're seeing some progress, we're seeing some ways in which we can take on the behemoths that are these agrochemical companies. The title of your book is Silent Earth. And I'm curious where you feel the earth is noisy, you know, where, where is a place that's getting it right or a place that we particularly need to protect that is still vibrant with the noise of biodiversity and particularly insect biodiversity? Well, sadly, there isn't really anywhere that isn't affected by uh, mankind one way or another. Although obviously industrialized agriculture hasn't reached everywhere, um, there are still fragments of pristine rainforest, uh, for example, but they are unfortunately being affected by climate change and nutrient deposition from the atmosphere, even the most remote corners of the world, uh, and also by plastic pollution as well. Um, Even the most remote corners of the world are, are being impacted, sadly. But there are still places with an awful lot of insects, both the biodiversity hotspots in the tropics that, that have survived to date, which you know, we we just desperately need to stop deforestation, just, just as we need to stop taking fossil fuels out of the ground. So the two biggest, most important things humans should do right now is stop using fossil fuels and stop chopping down rainforests, um, because there are still some amazing treasures left there. And all these insects we haven't even discovered, you know, the place where most species, most new species are being discovered, of course, are in the tropics. There are other areas too. I mean, Eastern Europe, there are parts of um, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, have really incredibly rich wildlife, meadows full of flowers that stretch from horizon to horizon. They are unfortunately being nibbled away at around the edges, but remain intact, uh, largely because these countries were part of the um, communist bloc. uh, And didn't get the sort of farming subsidies that uh, that Western Europe adopted after the Second World War. There are still some wonderful places left and we need to look after them. And in fact, even closer to home, you know, there are, you can find places that are very rich in insect life, even in towns. Um, there are brownfield sites in London, 
which have thousands of species living in them, just because they've been left alone for a while, they were considered contaminated land. Um, and, and so we're just fenced off and left in peace, which is really all wildlife needs to thrive. Even gardens um, can be can have literally thousands of species in them. So, you know, you don't have to go far to find to find lots of insects. And uh, I think that's a that that's a nice thing, particularly because it means everyone can get involved in doing something to help them because they're all around us. Yes, and as you say in the book, insect na- nature can bounce back. You know that there is this way in which, like as you're saying, on those brownfields or in these other places where uh, we can bring back that kind of vibrant biodiversity. I would like to end with this question. You know, what is it that we each can do in our own ways to be part of doing what you say in your subtitle, averting the insect apocalypse? There are loads of things we can do. Um, uh, so one of, one of my favorite sort of topics is, is encouraging people to encourage insects in their, in their yards, in their gardens, um, if they're lucky enough to have one. I know not everybody does. But if you do, just grow some wildflowers, don't mow the lawn too often, don't use any pesticides, uh, dig a little pond if you've got room. And you'll see the results immediately. You'll see in bees arriving to visit the flowers that you're growing. So that's one thing, but it's, it's not suitable for everybody um, because not everybody has a garden. But we also, the bigger picture is we need to support um, a different system of farming. It's not just about banning neonics because they'll just be replaced by something else just as bad. It's about trying to change the whole food system. And we can support that with what we buy. If we buy organic food, pesticide-free food, buy from local farmers, buy and eat seasonal food, eat less meat, um, essentially try to, every shop, every time you shop, your it's that choice makes a real difference to the world, especially if enough people make the right choices. Vote with your wallet and and support proper, sustainable, regenerative farming close to you um, that has the least impact on the environment and is supporting insect life. It may not be that easy to find, but I'm sure that thankfully there are lots of great regenerative farming operations starting up around the world, and I'm sure you can find one near you to support. Great. Well, thank you so much. As you were talking, as I was listening to your answer, I was looking out at the bees on the flowers in my garden. So I am reminded that, you know, just that is also one step we can all take. So thank you so much. Thank you for your work. Thank you for this book. And thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Anna LaPay, and that was Doug Goulson, author of Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, It was my great pleasure to guest host this episode of Real Food Reads. Thank you so much for subscribing to our podcasts wherever you get yours and leaving us a review. It helps more people find out about our work. You can send your ideas for books and topics to us at realfoodmedia.org. Join our monthly newsletter for more resources from our team. We look forward to hearing from you.